Luke 8, verses 4 to 15. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and a time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go their way, they are choked by, the, by riches and pleasure, by, sorry, by cares and the riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for what is in, that is in good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, we praise you for your holy word. For in your word there is life. We praise you that your word accomplishes that for which you have sent it. Father, we look forward with anticipation to hearing what you would say to us this morning from your word. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are the eternal Son of God who came into the world. Lord, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to be the gospel of the kingdom. Holy Spirit, we are confident that you will work in the hearts of your people. Lord, causing life and maintaining life and causing life to abound in fruit for the glory of God's holy name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning as I preach what is perhaps best titled the parable of the soils, my job is made easier because of where we live. We live in Kelowna, where agriculture plays a major part in our local economy. The Okanagan, as you're probably aware, is Canada's fruit basket. We are a major producer of cherries and peaches and apricots and apples and pears and not to mention grapes. BC produces over 80% of Canada's cherries and a lot of them are grown right here in the Okanagan. Now I'm excited because the cherries are just about ready. I've been checking in with Vince on a regular basis, and, uh, and he said even with the rain, the cherries are still doing well, and uh, they should be starting to come, I think, this week. And so cherries, as you're probably aware, is, is my, they're, they're one of my favorite fruits. There's, there's nothing like in the summertime sitting down with a bowl of cherries. If you want cherries, you need to talk to the Kuipers or, the, or to the, the Hammonds, and they'll, they'll hook you up. But when it comes to a passage like this, it's easier because of the familiarity of the topic to the congregation. Now, this would, of course, be very different in a big city. When I was living in, in Louisville, there were, there were very few in, in the church that I was attending that, that even would have had a vegetable garden. But here, the majority of us have a garden. The majority of us know what it's like to, to have quail ransack your garden. You know what it's like to, to fight with weeds. You, you know what it's like to have to break up stones in the ground. And you know the joys of reaping a bountiful harvest. So at least when it comes to the, 
the explanation of, of this passage and, and the, the, what, what's taking place in this parable, these are things that, that we are familiar with. But in this passage, there are also deep truths. We mustn't look at this just on a, on a super level, superficial level. This is not just about farming practices. This isn't even primarily about farming practices. There are deep spiritual truths that our Lord wants us to see from this passage. You understand that God is a gardener, right? God created the beautiful Garden of Eden, and He planted Adam in the midst of the garden to tend and to, to care for the garden. Man is a the, is the crowning glory and is, pl- is placed in the middle of God's garden. Joel Beakey uses this metaphor of God as a gardener, speaking of Christ's message to the seven churches in Revelation. He says that God is a gardener who walks around the flower beds he has planted to, to appreciate their rich color, texture, and growth. He says, if you are a gardener, it is wonderful to enjoy the fruits of your labors. He says that is how we should think of Christ and his, amid his churches. He is a gardener rejoicing in the fruits of his labors. Biki goes on to say, he seemingly says in chapter 2, I know your strong points, and I appreciate your labors of love and patience and perseverance and soundness, church discipline, purity, and activities. I rejoice in these things, but my heart aches because in the midst of all that lovely foliage and color, I see a blight that will destroy you if it is not dealt with. Now, if you're a gardener, you know what it's like. You know what it's like to have, have aphids or, or fungus or, or any number of things, cutworms, whatever, to, to attack your garden. You know that personally. And when you see these things in your garden, you, you want to take care of it. You want to deal with it as quickly and as decisively as possible. But when Jesus preached the parable of the soils in Luke 8 to 14, he wasn't looking out at the church. The church, remember, hadn't come into existence yet. He wasn't looking out at the vast crowd that had followed him. So rather, he was looking out at the vast crowd that had followed him, the majority of which had no intention of turning away from their sin and putting their faith in him. Yes, there were true disciples in that crowd, but most who were there were following Jesus for selfish sinful and unspiritual reasons. They came because they wanted to witness or to experience healing. They came out of a a nationalist zeal and they wanted Jesus to get rid of the Romans. Some came out of mere curiosity, others out of boredom. They weren't really following Jesus at all. But in that throng, there were those who were truly following Jesus. This was not a church gathering where the vast majority of the people were genuine believers that needed sanctification. This was a crowd where the majority of the people were unbelievers that needed salvation. Yet to all appearances, at least initially, it would not have been obvious who was who. So Jesus tells the crowd a parable. In fact, from here on in, in Luke's gospel account, the majority of Jesus' teaching to the crowds is presented in parables. Now, the word parable means to to place something alongside something else for the purpose of comparison. And in his parables, Jesus uses objects and settings and scenarios that his hearers could relate to. They could relate to these things from their, their daily lives. These analogies that communicate a spiritual reality. As, as I said, this is something, when we talk about these, these different types of soul, these are things that, that most of us here can on some level relate to. But what Jesus is doing here is he's using the familiar to communicate deep spiritual truths. Many parables, especially those that you see in, in Matthew, are similes. Where, where you, you might remember from, from English class, a simile is a comparison using like or as. So the, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. Luke 13, 44. But some parables, like the parable of the soils here in Luke 8, to, Luke 8 verses 4 to 15, are an, are an allegory. 
Now, some shy away from the term allegory because of the allegorical interpretations that were common in the early church. We see this in some of the, in the early church fathers, where, where every single detail in the parable or whatever passage represents something else. It's often fanciful. For example, Origen it talks in, this, in interpreting the parable of the soils, says that the, the seed that is sown along the way means beside or alongside Jesus Christ. Alongside, but apart from Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the way. Well, now it's true that Jesus is the way, but he is not saying that the, the, soil, the seed planted along the wayside has any direct reference to, reference to Jesus as the way. He's teaching here the, the right principle from the wrong passage. He also concluded that the, the seed that is grown on rocky soil, that, in the, the, that rocky soil represents the hardness of heart. Well, now, again, this is true. The people who, who reject the word or grow for a little while do have a hard heart, but this is not what the passage is teaching. When it comes to a, the interpretation of parables, it, the, usually the case is that the, the main characters or the main objects teach the main point of the parable. In fact, in this parable, the parable of the soils, Jesus himself actually interprets the parable for us. He's showing us how we should interpret this parable and how we should interpret other parables. Jesus is doing the exposition for us. And so he has the seed, which he says is the word of God, and then the four types of soils are the four ways to hear the word of God. And three out of the four are the wrong way to hear the word of God. So in the parable of the soils, again, we, we see the seed and the four soils. This is the meaning. In verses 4 to 8, we have the parable itself. And then verses 9 to 15, Jesus explains the parable. First of all, he describes the, the seed as the word in verse 11. And then verse 12, it's this, Jesus describes the seed sown along the path. And then verse 13, the seed on rocky soil. In verse 15, the seed on thorny soil. And then finally in verse 15, the seed on good soil. Now when Jesus teaches these parables in this way, he's actually hiding the truth from the hard-hearted and revealing it to the spiritually hungry. As Leon Morris explains, the parables demand thought and spiritual earnestness. They separate the sincere seeker from the casual hearer. But the majority in the crowds who were listening to this message were merely casual hearers. They will completely miss the message. And this parable shows us why. The parable of the soils is, is one of Jesus' best-known parables. And the lessons that he taught here are relevant in every church throughout history and around the world. There are a variety of responses to the Word of God. There are a variety of responses to Jesus' message. And the response reveals the heart. Some will receive it. Others will reject it. And like the next passage as well, this passage presents a call to respond to the word of God in faith and obedience. While many are evangelized, few are saved. Only those who hear the word of the gospel, believe the word of the gospel, and persevere in the word of the gospel remain until the end. This passage presents the obstacles to a fruitful harvest. And it promises judgment against those who do not respond in faith and obedience. The people that Jesus describes are, are represented right here in this room. This passage applies to me. This passage applies to you. We are all somewhere in this parable. So this is a warning about how to hear the word of God. Now some here aren't listening even at this very moment. This is a call to listen rightly. Preaching can clearly articulate the message of the passage and apply it to your particular situation, but if you don't listen with your heart, it will not help you. 
There are four soils described in this passage, but only one of them is described as good soil. Which soil are you? So first of all, the parable in verses 4 to 8. In verse 4, we see that the crowd is growing. The crowd is thronging about Jesus. Jesus' popularity has increased. A great crowd has gathered from town after town. Remember, we saw that last week, that he traveled throughout the countryside, going to the, the various towns and cities. And, and evidently, a number of the people had followed him as he traveled. But Jesus isn't interested in drawing a crowd. Jesus is interested in calling disciples. Jesus seeks more than superficial obedience, superficial devotion. But this is a mixed crowd made up of of believers and unbelievers. Now, even though we're we're split in half and and we're relatively small numbers, it's it's clear that that this is very likely a mixed crowd as well. Now, it might look from the outside like we're all disciples. But the way that you can tell the reality is the way you hear the word of God. So in this passage, many uh, of the crowds had not yet made up their minds. So Jesus teaches them this parable that is meant to draw a distinction between the serious disciples and the spiritually dead. So Jesus Jesus begins in verse 5, A sower went out to sow. This is a scene that would have been very familiar to the crowd that was gathered there in Galilee. The general practice was for a sower to go into the field with a bag of seeds, usually wheat or barley, and as as he walked along the path, he he would sow the seed, throwing it to the ground. Now all of it wouldn't hit its mark. Some would fall along the path. The path refers to the place where the farmer walked as he sowed the seed. And this, the travelers would also use such paths to traverse the countryside. We read in, uh, Matthew, in Mark chapter 2 about, about the way that the disciples, they walked through the field and plucked the ears of grain as they were walking through the field. This would have been on such a path. Because of the dry climate there in Galilee, these paths would, have become, it would become as hard as a paved road. The farmer would, would come back later after he'd sowed the seed to, to plow up the ground and to, to, um, to bury the seed under the ground. But the seed that fell on this ground wouldn't be plowed in. It would get, merely get trampled underfoot as a farmer and others walked along the path and it would be eaten by birds. Now Vince was telling me about how he had planted grass seed. And before it had a chance to germinate, the, the quail went through and ate almost all of it. Now, I, I was aware of, of these things, and, and uh, so I, I talked to my neighbor, an elderly lady across the street, and, and she puts, uh, this is a little tip for you for planting grass seed, she puts a, an old bed sheet on top of it, and then waters that, everything, un, the grass seed underneath it, the quail can't get at it, and it also keeps the moisture in, and, and it helps the seeds to germinate without being, being chewed up by the quail. Now, some of this the seed was, was planted on the wayside. It was destroyed by, by the birds and it was destroyed by the feet of passers-by. Some of the, of the seed fell on the rock. Now the rock here doesn't refer to stones as the ground because, in the ground because any decent farmer would have cleared those rocks away. Rather it refers to the areas of limestone that were common in that region, that are common in that region, which are covered by just a thin layer of soil. Now, that thin layer of soil can't hold moisture. Now, we don't have that problem here in the Okanagan, but because the Okanagan was was formed by glaciers and by flooding, there's often a thick layer of rocks just below the surface. If you've done any digging in the ground, especially here on this this flat part in Kelowna, you will will experience these rocks. They're, They're formidable. And the same thing happens that very similar as in this situation, when, when it gets hot, when this rocky soil, if you've not prepared the ground, then the, when the sun comes out and gets hot in the summertime, the root is going to wither and your plant is just going to die. This is especially true of, of trees and, and uh, plants that have a, a deeper root system. Matthew and Mark include the detail that the plant often springs up quickly. 
Now, I haven't seen this for myself, but, but apparently if, it, if it's, it's the rocky soil like that, the plant will often grow up quickly because the energy of the plant is not going into digging down the, the life-sustaining roots. And so the, the plant above the ground will grow up, but, but again, when, when it gets hot, that plant is just going to die. It looks good until the hot weather comes, and then it's all over. Some of the seed, we're told, fell among thorns. Now, these are the, the prickly weeds that grow up commonly in the Palestinian countryside. And as any farmer or gardener knows, that weeds often grow more quickly than whatever it is you're trying to plant. I've heard people say that, well, weeds are just a, a plant in the wrong place. And I disagree with that. I think weeds are weeds. And they're a bane. Weeds take the water and they take the nutrients from the soil and they, they, when they grow up, they block the sunlight that the, plant, the plants you want need to grow. Now, I know a little bit about weeds. Most of you probably don't know this, but I, I have a side job. And I've really scaled it back over the last few years. But, but in, the, in the spring and the fall, I will, I will go and clear weeds. Tom's helped me out with this. He knows what kind of work it is. It's not fun, but it does pay really well. And so I'll go on, on steep hillsides and, with a brush cutter and I'll, and I'll clear weeds. Now, it's a good thing that, that this area is not being planted because these weeds grow back. If you want to know about knapweed or, or Russian thistle, I'd be happy to fill you in on this. But these weeds come back. It's, it's job security. Now, I, I call my company Genesis 3 Gardens because of the cursing of the ground in Genesis 3, 18 and 19. Thorns and thistles you shall, it shall bring forth from you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And if you were with me last Monday when I was doing this, you would have seen the sweat of my face. But I also call it Genesis 3 Gardens because of the overturning of the curse of the ground and the entire curse through Jesus Christ and the, the hope of the, the new heavens and the new earth. So those are the three bad soils. Well, the good soil we find out about, it comes, it, when the seed falls into this good soil, it grows and yields a hundredfold. Matthew and Mark include the details that it was some 30-fold and some 60-fold. This is a very productive planting. Now, I know that the Kuipers and the, the, the Hansons and, and, the, and the Hammonds know intimately about this from farming. But if you've ever even planted a vegetable garden, you know, it, you know the joys of producing a bountiful harvest. There's nothing quite like the satisfaction of, of, cult, of, of harvesting the food that you have cultivated. There's nothing quite like the enjoyment of, of picking a tomato off the vine that, that you have planted and slicing it up and putting it on a hamburger. It makes the work well worth it. So this is, this is the parable itself. But then Jesus calls out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Everyone has ears. Look at the person sitting next to you. I think you'll find that they have two ears. Everyone has ears, but precious few have ears to hear. Do you have ears to hear? Let's see as we hear the explanation from verses 9 to 15. Well, now the disciples asked Jesus what the parable meant. Now, sometimes we criticize the disciples for their foolish questions. But, you know, I don't mind when people ask questions. When I was a school teacher, I used to love it when students asked me questions because it meant that they were engaging with what I was talking about. But I love it far more now when people ask questions because what I'm teaching about now has eternal significance. It's not wrong to ask questions, and this is a good question. It points to the fact that the disciples are truly disciples. They want to understand what Jesus was teaching here, and so they go to the teacher. They ask Jesus for the answer. In Mark 4.10, we're told that, that it was those who were with the twelve who asked the question, and that they did so when they were alone with Jesus, away from the crowd. So this was a, was a private session afterwards. 
Jesus gives the main point of the parable in verse 10 and then develops it more fully in verses 11 to 15. He says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. The you is emphatic here. Jesus is drawing a distinction between the disciples and everyone else. He's saying that you, my disciples, have been given the wonderful blessing of knowing the secrets of the kingdom of God. Remember, the kingdom of God is God's reign and God's rule. The term is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. It's God's rule over the hearts of those who love him and submit to his authority. And it's only true disciples who know what the kingdom of God is. The crowds, on the other hand, are on the outside looking in. They see without seeing and hear without understanding. Now, in this passage, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. I'll, I'll read it for us. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears, or sorry, see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This passage is often quoted in the New Testament, and each time it deals with the same subject the Jews and their hard hearts. Jesus is declaring that Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled. He's speaking about people who have their own ideas about God. And he's telling them, if you continue to reject me, I will reject you. I'm going to speak to you in such a way that you will not understand. They have hardened themselves against God's truth, so God has hardened them further. Leon Moore says that the parables both reveal and conceal the truth. They reveal and conceal the truth. They reveal the truth as they would reveal the truth to those whose hearts are being tilled by the Holy Spirit, and they conceal it from those who merely hear without listening. So Jesus is telling these parables in part to make it harder to understand. This is judgment. Those who wanted Jesus to get rid of Rome wouldn't understand this. Those who wanted to witness or to receive a healing wouldn't understand this. Those who are merely curious wouldn't understand this. But among that group are those who really wanted to know. These disciples, they wanted to know. In order for these secrets to be revealed, God must reveal them. God must reveal them to us. He reveals the truth to the good soil. In fact, it's the revelation of God's truth that makes the soil good through the work of the Holy Spirit. As God's word comes into contact with a person whose heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit, the person then rejoices, receives this, in repentance and faith and obedience. So it's the revelation through the work of the Spirit that makes the soil good, but the other three soils hear and do not understand. Well, now in verses 11 to 15, Jesus explains exactly what the parable means. He begins, the seed is the word of God. Notice here that there is no explanation of the sower. The sower isn't important in this story. I am merely a sower. I'm not important. Thankfully, I'm not irrelevant, but I'm not important. I'm expendable. I'm replaceable. But the word of God, the seed, that is important. The word of God is important. And the seed is the word of God. It is the word that comes from God. And with what follows, we'll see that hearing is integrally associated with a response. All who hear the word respond in some way. You are responding to the word in some way, even at this very moment. This parable helps us to see that the majority of those who hear the gospel reject it. The proclamation of God's word is not merely for the purpose of communicating information. 
and the power of the Holy Spirit that provides transformation through faith and repentance in the hearts of those who are being saved, but in everyone else it brings condemnation. The word is the dividing line. It separates two people into two groups. It reveals that they are separated into two groups. This is often the case, especially with parables, that they reveal the mysteries of the kingdom to disciples, but hide it from everyone else. The effect of the parable reveals exactly what Jesus is teaching. In the good soil, sowing the seed brings increase through the power of God. But in the rocky path, or in the rocky, in the, in the the wayward path and the, the rocky soil and the, thir- and the thorny soil, it brings judgment. And you will hear and respond to the gospel in one of these four ways this morning. So the seed along the path in verse 12. The pathway hearer hears, but then the devil takes the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. The seed of the gospel is devoured by the devil almost as soon as it hits the ground. These people never really take the word into their hearts. The seed dies before it even has a chance to germinate. It isn't sown in their conscience or even in their consciousness. It doesn't really convict and it isn't even considered. In the battle for hearts between God and Satan, Luke says that that some fail to respond to the word because of the devil's work. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4 about the gospel being veiled to those who are perishing. He says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And these people reject the gospel outright. When we do street evangelism, this is the the most common response that I see. I see this even from people who regularly go to churches in the city. The the devil uses all kinds of temptations to keep people from believing. Sitting under false teaching, the fear of man, love of sin, pride, false religions, doubt, so-called science, wrong presuppositions, spiritual apathy, All of these are used by the devil to keep unbelievers unbelieving. Don't forget, the devil is real. He is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He and his horde are seeking to devour you. Are you a pathway hearer? Watch out for the devil. The devil might distract you from coming to church. But even if you don't come, he's here. He wants to distract you, even as you are sitting here this morning. Next, we'll look at the seed on rocky soil, verse 13. The rocky soil hearer is the one who hears the word of God and initially receives it with joy. However, there is no depth of soil, so they only believe for a little while. This shallow soil reveals a shallow faith. When the time of testing comes, they fall away. They apostatize. This word that it's it's translated testing here in the ESV can also refer to temptation or trial. It can be persecution or, or any sort of trial. Shallow faith cannot survive the pressure of persecution. Shallow faith cannot survive the heat of trials. Now you can feel, and you should feel, deep peace or profound joy at the proclamation of the gospel. There are often feelings, deep feelings, that we talked about this recently, about feelings that that are associated with coming to faith in Christ. But feelings are not enough. You can respond strongly initially, but it is what lasts that's what matters. Time and truth go hand in hand. Be careful not to judge the moment, but consider your trajectory, the big picture. You can be too easily encouraged or too easily discouraged if you focus on just a small block of time. Don't rely on an emotional response to the word. Tears of regret and tears of joy will not take you very far. 
Now, there are many passages in the New Testament that, that speak about the role of trials in the life of the believer. Now, I remember very clearly when I was a new believer, I don't remember what it was that was going on in my life, but I was just maybe even a week old in the Lord. And I had I'd never heard the gospel prior to, prior to getting saved. So my theology was, it was way off. But I thought that when I got saved, that everything was going to be great in my life. I thought I was going to have any problems. There, there are churches that are teaching this. The prosperity gospel is, is although it's no gospel, is, is very common even in this city. But it only took me just a few days to realize that that wasn't true. The trials are part and parcel of being a believer. And life of the believer, trials make your roots go down deeper. Trials make your roots go down deeper. Now, I would recommend, strongly recommend, that you take some time to study Romans 5, 1 to 5, or, or Romans 8, 18 to 39, or James 1, 2 to 4. Time is not going to let me focus on these passages and the sanctifying effect of trials here, but one of my main jobs as a pastor is to prepare you for suffering. Some of you are suffering right now. And if the Lord tarries, all of us will suffer. But let me just focus for a couple minutes on one passage. Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Now Peter has written uh, his, his epistle here to the suffering church, the exiles who had been scattered because of persecution. And he's written this letter to encourage suffering saints. Look down at verse, uh, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, by, by all kinds of different trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the, at the sorry, glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in the believer, you rejoice in the face of trials, because you understand what these trials are doing in your life. They're, they're causing you to cling to Christ, to hold on more tightly to Christ. Again, it's important to realize that suffering is part of the Christian life. We must follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Now, of course, we don't suffer anywhere close to the degree that Jesus suffered. But we suffer nonetheless. People suffer. It's part of living in the fallen world, fallen world. But for the Christian, there's a particular kind of suffering. Christians often experience persecution. We, we pray about this on a regular basis. Now, at this point in a culture, it has not gone nearly to the point of what our brothers and sisters are facing around the world. But, but persecution is here, and it's coming. So there's the persecution type of suffering, and there's, there's more, the more general trials. And so as you face trials, you suffer. But you don't just suffer by yourself. You have the added pressure of, of suffering before the watchful gaze of the unbelievers in your life. And, and in some cases, these unbelievers are waiting for you to fall. They're watching and wanting you to fall because in their mind, it proves that what you believe is false. And so we we suffer. We, we suffer with those around us, but we also don't suffer alone because God is with us in our suffering. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you in your suffering. The Lord Jesus Christ is interceding for you in your suffering, and you can trust that God is using it. I say this so often. God is using it for His glory and for your good. 1 Peter 4, 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Brothers and sisters, I see so many of you glorifying God in the midst of suffering. Now, none of us do it perfectly. But when I see you striving to, to keep your eyes on Christ, again, not looking in the moment by moment, 
We can all struggle with, with doubts and fears and things like that in the moment. But, but in the, the, the broad spectrum, in the, the trajectory of your lives, I see so many of you focusing on Christ in the midst of trials. And this is evidence that you're not that bad soil. That you're the good soil that Jesus is going to talk about in a few minutes. But for the rocky soil here, the picture is very different. The one who has merely made an outward confession, the one who has merely raised a hand or, or prayed a prayer or walked an aisle, but is not truly born again, even, even in a person who has looked like a believer, even for a long time, but is not truly born again, trials have the opposite effect. They reveal that faith is false. The root withers, and the plant of false faith dies. How do you respond in trials? Do they drive you to God or do they drive you away from God? This reveals what kind of soil you are. Next, the seed on thorny soil, verse 14. The thorny soil hearer also hears, and again the plant seems to grow. But as they go along, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. They allow worldly distractions to kill them. They're choked by cares. Now this could be fear of, 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 genuine, prob of, of genuine problems. Or it can be fear of, of, of problems that are just in your imagination. It could be fear of what's taking place in your own life and in the lives of your family and other loved ones, or it could be fear about what's taking place out there in the world. And I think that is a particular danger to us here at this moment. The insanity of the world around you will consume you. It will consume your attention and will kill you if you let it. Yes, see these things. Yes, declare that these things are wrong and, and sinful and an abomination before God. But don't get consumed by focusing on them. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. So you can be choked by cares or you can be choked by riches. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, many people misquote this passage to say that, that money is the root of all evil, but it's not money. It is the love of money. There is a sense in which, in which temporal, material blessings are a gift from God. God gives many temporal blessings. Even the, the poorest among us is wealthy compared to many of our brothers and sisters around the world. God gives us good blessings, and they are to be enjoyed as gifts coming from our Heavenly Father. But like the cares, don't let them consume your attention. Don't let them distract you from the gospel from your relationship with God. So you could be choked by cares, you could be choked by riches, or you could be choked by the pleasures of life. Again, it's not wrong to enjoy good things. But the word that, that's translated pleasures here is the same word from which we get the word hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure. And this characterizes our culture, doesn't it? Our culture is, is geared towards the consumption of, of entertainment. Instant satisfaction with a click of a button. And this desire for pleasure will choke you. It will consume you. Again, if you let it. The Christian finds his or her ultimate pleasure in God. When you understand the joys of a, an intimate relationship with Almighty God. The shine quickly comes off the toys that the world has to offer. 
you, you rejoice in the fullness of him. And again, you can enjoy these, these external the material pleasures, but, but you enjoy them that much more because you know they've come to you from your heavenly father as a gift to you to be enjoyed for his glory. Now, which of these speaks to you? Which, which of these hits close to home for you? The potential for growth is there, but it's choked out. The weeds of cares and, and riches and the pleasure draw away the life-giving water and nutrients from the plant. They block the sun, and the plant withers and dies. Now, this person might even profess belief in Christ. They might agree with sound doctrine. They might even make big changes in their life, but they allow worldly things to consume their thinking. Do not rely on making commitments to change. Resolutions are not the same thing as repentance. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, we're, we're told that, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the writer of Hebrews there says, not just to lay aside sin, that's obvious but to let us lay aside every weight, everything that is hindering you from pursuing Jesus Christ, from running hard after him. Now, I have seen many people consumed by the cares of this life, and, and they've gradually drifted further and further and further away from the church, and we just never see them again. I've seen men who, who don't grow spiritually because not just because of these, these cares, but because they're lazy. I've, I've seen these things happen. I've seen the, the potential for fruit. What appeared to be a genuine believer, I've seen them choked out and I've seen them walk away. Even good things can be a distraction. What is distracting you? Are you clearing weeds? The disciple is busy clearing weeds. They're like me on that hillside with a brush cutter. Clearing weeds. It's your life full of things that choke out the gospel. Now we could all stand to do some weed clearing. But if your spiritual life has been completely choked out by weeds, we're, we're probably talking not about the need for weed clearing, but for the need for a seed to be planted in your heart for the work of the Spirit. We're talking about the need to be born again. Well, finally, we see the seed on good soil in verse 15. The good soil here, we're told, hears the word, holds fast to the word, and bears fruit in response to the word. The good soil hearer hears rightly. The seed of the gospel sinks down deep into their hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit and produces fruit. They repent, they believe, they obey. Now there's three parts here of, of this good soil response. First of all, it's the, the heart, the, having the right heart. It's an honest and good heart. This is a, a moral person who is and, and a person with integrity that makes makes right and godly choices and again this is through the work of the holy spirit this the second response is is the one they hold fast they cling to the word they don't let go of god and his promises and then the third response described only here in Luke, that they stand firm under life's pressures. This is the opposite of falling away. This is the, the quality of, of bearing up under pressure. And this is what is true in the, the heart of the true believer, in the good soil, of a, of, in a good hearer. When you rest in God's promises, when you, you hope in Him, you can overcome everything that present, prevents fruitlessness. Everything, even trials, even severe persecution, 
How is it you think that, that our brothers and sisters who are standing firm in the, in the gospel are able to do so? Is it because of, of their moral fortitude? Is it because they're, they're better people than you or me? No, it is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, causing them to persevere, enabling them to stand firm in the midst of trials. You can also overcome, you can overcome worries about wealth or, or pleasures or cares of life through the same work of the same Holy Spirit who is at work in you, enabling you to stand firm, giving you a heart that, that loves Jesus more than anything else that's out there. Again, this doesn't come naturally to us. This is God who does it in our hearts. John 15, 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Jesus has shown you, chosen you, brothers and sisters, for good fruit. You are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus for the good works that he has prepared in advance for you to walk in. Ephesians 2.10. In Ephesians 2, or 4, rather, 1 to 3, we're told to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, think about that for a second. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the fruit, the good fruit, that abounds in the life of the believer. Or the, the attitudes in Galatians 5, and 23. The fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is all the fruit of the work of the Spirit in the heart of the good soil hearer. It's attitudes and it's also actions. Colossians 1.10 And so walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now think about that one as well. Fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in the, the, in the good heart. The good soil has been made good by God. God. Philippians 1, 10, 11, Be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Brothers and sisters, I see this in so many of you. I see you bearing good fruit, abounding in fruit, bringing forth a harvest of fruit for the glory of of God. God is glorified in you, in your fruit. These are the ones who hear and are saved. There was four soils, but only one describes the person who is truly regenerate, who is truly born again. We'll see this next week, Lord willing, in verse 21. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. We're invited in Isaiah 55, 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love for David. This is an invitation. This is an invitation even for you this morning to, to see, if you are here as an unbeliever, to see that you deserve the wrath of God. That you are under the wrath of God. It's an invitation for you to turn away from your sin, to put your faith in Jesus, to trust that he suffered and died in your place, that the punishment that you deserved was placed upon him. That he lived the righteous life that you could never live, not even for one moment. And so in receiving Jesus Christ, in turning to him in repentance and faith, all of your guilt gets put on Jesus. And all of his righteousness is credited to your account. Now, I don't know what kind of soil you are as you sit here this morning. You might not even know 
what kind of soil you are as you sit here this morning. But this is an invitation for you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm just a weak sower. I'm just, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not a good farmer. But the, the weaknesses and the failings of the sower or the farmer are not the problem. The seed is not the problem. The problem is not with the word. Isaiah 55, 10, 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that comes, that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose. It shall succeed for the thing in which I sent it. Now, I'm not the sower, the farmer that, I, that I've been, that, I'm, I'm, that I could be. But I remember when I used to be a really bad farmer. I, I used to push people to pray. I'd say, just repeat after me. Just say these words. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a sinner's prayer, but there's nothing magical about saying a set of words. It's about the, being saved is about the transformation of the heart, being born again. But I would make people, I'd say, well, I would make them, but I would, I would try to compel them to, to pray this prayer. And then I would say to them when they prayed it, now don't let anyone ever convince you that you're not saved. I was a really good one-point Calvinist. I would tell people who had no business being convinced that they were saved that that never doubt that you're saved was foolishness. Now, I'm thankful that I now understand the word much better. And it's possible that, that some may have actually been born again through the message that I preached. I'm thankful that it doesn't depend on me. Keith gave me some insights on this from his grandfather. He said, he said you can't turn bad soil into good soil. You can't. Now, you can add manure or you can add fertilizer and do all kinds of work to increase your yields, but bad soil is bad soil. Keith's grandfather told him that, that when you move into a new community, you should drive around and see who has the biggest house and who has the, the best crops and the best fields. And he said, go and buy land next to them and do what they do. Now that's great advice for farming, but not for churches. Because that's what the church growth strategists try to do. They, they try to copy what they think is successful. They, they look at what they see as a successful church and they say, oh, just do that. And, and I could point out to you all kinds of examples where, where someone has, has built a, a large gathering of people through copying things like the seeker-sensitive movement and trying to, to get them into the, to what they call a church, but I, I really think in many cases these aren't real churches. They say, if that, if that doesn't work, I'm, I'm going I'm to try to strategize and, and change the soil through man-centered means. But it's only the Holy Spirit who can change the quality of the soil. Only the Holy Spirit can change the heart. But as you sit here this morning, as you, as you go through this week, as you reflect on, on last week, as you reflect on the trajectory of your life, what kind of fruit does your life display? Which kind of soil are you? Hearing the word of God is dangerous. It's dangerous. You have a personal responsibility to respond in repentance and faith to the proclamation of God's word. Sitting here this morning, if you are an unbeliever, is dangerous. There are four ways to hear the word. Four ways to hear what has been proclaimed this morning. These four ways of hearing reveal four kinds of soils. The seed along the path, those who hear and just don't believe. The rocky ground hearer, 
those who hear and believe for a little while, but, but trials make them fall away. The thorny ground hearer, where cares and riches and the pleasures of life choke out the word so it doesn't become fruitful. Or the good ground hearer that bears fruit for the glory of God. John MacArthur says that our, all four soils are made up of the same dirt. The determining factor in how people respond to the gospel are the influences that prevail upon and dominate hearts. And it's only in the heart who has been prevailed, that has been prevailed upon and dominated by the Holy Spirit that will respond in faith and obedience. The work of the, it is the work of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the Word of God. I can sow the seed, but only the Holy Spirit can plow the soil, can break up the rocks, and clear the weeds. Which soil are you? Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you and we praise you for your word. For Lord, even as you spoke creation into existence with a word, Lord, you bring new life into existence through the word and Lord, we know that the latter is a far greater miracle than the former. For Lord, when you grant new life through the work of your spirit and the proclamation of your word, you are not just creating something out of nothing. You are changing a heart that was rebellious and sinful, a heart that hated you. And you're taking out that stony heart and replacing it with a heart of love and worship. And this heart we know will bear fruit for your glory. Lord, I pray that through the proclamation of your word this morning, even those who are hearing as unbelievers, through the work of your Holy Spirit, will become good soil for the glory of your name. Amen.